This is Amy Cohen Epstein, founder and executive director of the 20 plus year old nonprofit organization, the Lynn Cohen Foundation and The Seam, the series for education and awareness in medicine. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing female founders, entrepreneurs, scientists, doctors, researchers to talk about women's health, wellness, and preventive care. Take a listen. Welcome to the Theme Podcast. I am so excited to talk to Meryl Tufanian today. I have met some absolutely incredible women in my life, and I have had the distinct pleasure of meeting a few really incredible women um, through my husband over the last 20 plus years, and one of them is Meryl. And there aren't that many of them <laughs> that I can say have checked all the boxes where I have met women through Matt who are not only fun and funny and witty, but ridiculously engaging and intelligent. And I think it was the very first time, maybe the second time that I met you, Meryl, that Matt literally said to me, and I don't think he had met you that many times before I did. And he said to me, she's the smartest person you will ever meet and ever talk to and be in a room with. And that is held true. And what Matt has then said about you to anyone else for over two decades. And I will say about Matt is that, of course, he's really smart, but he has also sat in rooms with, you know, presidents, heads of state, secretaries of the treasuries from our own country and others. And he continually says Meryl Tufanian is the smartest person that I've ever talked to. And you are. I mean, it's just incredible. And I, and I don't mean that to, like, embarrass you or anything, but it's true. So I, I, I rarely read someone's, like, bio, but I think yours is so incredible that I have to read it. And the theme stands for the series um, Educational Awareness in Medicine, and interviewing you is like that. So you currently serve as a director of FDA's Office of Generics, drug policy, which oversees the development and implementation of regulatory policy arising from all aspects of the generic drug program. Merrill is a recognized agency expert on matters concerning the federal law related to patents and other intellectual property protections for brand and generic drugs, the legislative, the legislative and regulatory landscape for generic drug regulation, including scientific approval requirements and novel complex product considerations, and the Drug Competition Action Plan, a key component of the administration's efforts to increase access to medicines and lower high drug prices. Merrill has masterfully represented the generic drug program in high-profile meetings with industry and other national and international stakeholders involved in the ever-changing regulatory landscape for generic drugs. I will say that it was a long time ago that you said to me that this was your dream job. Maybe I'm making that up, but I feel like you said that. So the first question I want to ask you is, one, did I just make that up? And if I didn't, (laughs) is that true now that you have that, now that you are in this job? 
Yeah. So first of all, I have to thank you for that extraordinarily generous introduction. Uh, hopefully I will live up to the hype at least a little bit. Um, but it is a privilege to do the work that I do. And this is actually a dream job for me uh, for the following reasons. I, you know, got into the law after a uh, small stint in liberal arts graduate school and really loved the intellectual opportunities and engagement that legal thinking can present. Uh, but, but, and, and I had a really wonderful set of experiences before turning to FDA and joining the FDA, uh, which allowed me to develop intellectual interest and expertise and, and work with really smart people. But there was always that something missing of what good am I doing? And I think that getting up and going to work and making money and contributing to successful businesses and contributing to your family are all in and of itself like dream jobs and, and dream opportunities. Mm -hmm. But working for the FDA generally really was the offer opportunity for me to help people directly uh, in a broad way um, and in something that, that is utterly compelling to me, and that is public health. And when the opportunity to work within the generic and with and then eventually in the generic drug program itself, I think, although I may have drank the generic drug Kool-Aid because there's so much good work that the FDA does, it really is a program where you help people every day. And you get it because I'm making sure, I'm helping making sure, making sure that the generic drugs that I take, that my kids take, that you and my beloved Epstein nephews take are safe and they work just like the brand and they're available at a lower cost, which means more people can get them. And, you know, the, the reference to the drug competition action plan has been one of the biggest, um, you know, elements of my work that I found the most rewarding in that high drug prices and and what's more important access access to people to patients and their families who need them the most is is why I get up and go to work every day it, it's really great to say to my kids why do you have to go to work and i say i go to work because i get to make sure that people's medicines are safe and they can afford them and i i couldn't think of a better reason to get up and go to work I mean, I, I can't even, no, I, I cannot think of a better one. I just can't. And I don't think that most people, first of all, even understand what the FDA does. I mean, you read it on so many things that you buy, right, in the market, yeah. in, the, in the pharmacy, and from, you know, over-the-counter Tylenol and, you know, fever-reducing medicine to, you know, significant drugs that people take if they're really, really sick, like, you know, very sick with cancer to everything yep. in between. But very few people like literally know what the FDA does and all of, you know, all of the people that work there. So a few basic questions. If you had to say beyond what you specifically do, like what if just to the average person, what does the FDA do? Like what is so the, the main role right. of the F, of the Federal Drug Administration? Right. So I think that the main role, in my view, um, and, and the wonderful thing is, and I'll sort of put a plug in this and then I'll answer your question, is the FDA has a website and I find it to be one of the more robust websites out there that is actually designed to give people, real life folks, 
understanding of what we do. And it's, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to use. It's, you know, FDA.gov and there's whole sections that Mm -hmm. are just for, for the patient, for the consumer where you can, you know, recent announcements so that if you have a particular interest, you come across a, a food label or a tobacco warning or something with your, you know, animal medications or food or the drugs and biologics and, you know, the vaccines that you take, you can go to the website and say, like, what's the story? Um, but in general, I, I mean, the, the, the largest umbrella of the purpose of the FDA is to protect the public health, to ensure that the products that are, you know, used by the public, either in themselves or, you know, in their animals, um, either, and I'm talking about food and drugs and medical devices like pacemakers and, you know, all that stuff. It is our job Mm -hmm. to make sure that what is out there is, you know, safe and it it works and it, it is what it says it is. And there are, you know, I could talk for, people have whole careers about what we do, but I think that, for example, in my job, what we do is if there's a drug company that wants to make a generic drug, they have to submit a whole uh, you know, portfolio of information to show that their drug is going to work just like the brand. And what we do is we say, you're right, you've shown us it, you can be substituted by your, you know, pharmacist, or no, you haven't done that. So the first, one of our most important roles is that gatekeeper. And there's different things you have to show. If you want to market a, a brand drug for the first time, there's, you know, a lot of information you have to give us to, for us to say, yes, you're FDA approved, you know, same for generic, same for medical devices, um, you know, d- different, different rules for foods and, and um, animal, certain animal products and tobacco. So, so my expertise is in that sort of medical product field. Um, that's sort of one big job. Another big job we have is um, to, to go after entities that say they, you know, folks out there who, you know, are representing that their, you know, drug or their product that they're selling is FDA approved. If it's not, we will go, we will sort of go after them in an enforcement action um, and say, that's not permissible. You've got to stop. If a product that somebody is making is no longer meeting the requirements for approval, and it turns out that it's like being, you know, poorly manufactured, or you know, there's something in it that shouldn't be. There's something added to the, you know, ingredients that shouldn't be. We will, we have a responsibility to go and say, hey, you can't do that. And there's a whole host of steps that we can take. But the largest thing is we make we try to make sure that the drugs that we sanction, that we give our our stamp of literally a stamp of approval do what they say they're going to do and that all the safety, they can be made safely and distributed safely. And those we haven't approved uh, or those that we've approved and sort of have gone off the, uh, off the rails, uh, stop that behavior, you know? And so it's, yeah. And, and, and depending on the product is, you know, it depends on the science will inform what we require for any individual product. And how, I mean, on you know, I know you can't get the specifics, but like, I don't know if it's a scale of one to 10 or how you can answer this, but, and I do know that it is, and I, I understand that the getting a drug passed in the United States is, from what I understand, significantly more difficult than pretty much anywhere else in the world. How difficult is it from start to finish to get a drug or a vaccine or, you know, any medical device passed by the FDA? Right. 
Or does so, it depend, you know, I guess I'm certain there's an array from what right. you're doing, but in general. Well, I would say in general, it's not so much a level of div difficulty uh, as, you know, there there are certain there's certain data and information that we need to give a thumbs up that the drug is safe or effective and sometimes that might be easier to prove and sometimes that might be harder to prove and what's really important um, to remember is the difficulty of getting something approved um, has to really start with the science. You know, what is the science right. behind this drug? How are you going to show us from a scientific perspective, this drug's going to say what you're going to do? And that is not, you know, there's a lot, and there's lots of steps, like for a new drug, for a brand new drug that's never been, you know, used before, there's a number of really important steps. And what's interesting is in the current conversations under COVID, I hear reference to these steps and I have to sort of smile because this is something that I do every day. But for example, when you have a brand new drug, you have to figure out what the stuff is. You know, acetaminophen is the, what's called the active ingredient in Tylenol. And so if you have a brand new active ingredient. You got to figure out what it, what it is. And then you have to figure out what it might do. And um, so there's a lot of what's called preclinical work where you sit in a laboratory and you analyze it and you think about its, its nature and what its, you know, chemical or biologic makeup is and what it might do. And then you have to look at, um, in that drug development stage, you have to think, um, well, could we make it? How do we make it? How do we put it in? What kind of product is it? Is it a, will it be most effective if it's in a pill and people swallow it? Or if it's injected like an EpiPen into your body? Or, you know, there's a whole different array of types of drug products that are. So, so in order to, you have scientists getting together and figuring out like, what's the best way to get this benefit to patients. And then there's a series of, of phases of studies that you do in humans. Um, sort of very first to figure out, like, is it safe to put in a human? Um, that's usually what's described in phase one. Um, phase two, it's a slightly bigger group where you sort of start to suss out, like, what actually you think you want to claim the drug can do. And then you've got phase three trials where they're much bigger, where you're putting the drug into people with, I mean, this is sort of, you know, simply described, but you're putting the drug, you're giving the drug to patients and you're saying, take this drug and you will see if it works or not. And that's where you hear that, that a lot of, of discourse today is about these, when are we going to get to phase three trials? And that's that really like, is it going to do what it says it's going to do? You know, is it working better than a placebo? And so all of that is a lot. And that's just for new drugs. Generic drugs have a different, you know, set of things they have to show. They don't have to show their, um, they don't have to conduct all of those, what often are very expensive clinical studies that I just described, they have to show that they're the same as a drug that has done all these clinical studies. Um, what FDA has tried to do recently, really in all of their medical product work, is to make what we think our requirements are more transparent. And it really goes to being sort of a, the most transparent scientific organization that we have. So we'll say, we'll make recommendations that we'll make public. This says, if you want to develop an oncology, a cancer product, here's, here are some recommendations we have 
for all those different phases that we just described. If you want to develop a generic drug, here are our recommendations for how to do that. So, so I can't, unfortunately, it's, it's your answer, your question is a great one. And it's sort of a complicated answer, but when people talk about developing drugs or, or new products that FDA will review or regulate and the costs, it's, it's, those costs are sunk into, um, you know, those development pathways that I just described. And would you agree that the FDA is more stringent, let's say, than other equivalent, you know, bodies in other countries? Right. Uh, I don't want to come out in other countries because because uh, the, the <laughs> efforts across the globe are just phenomenal. I mean, FTA likes to say, and I'll say it, um, that we're the gold standard. I think we really are. I think okay. that the regulatory history that we have in this country and the experience and the work that we, you know, FDA and the generic, you know, and the, you know, branded generic and all of the industries. Yeah. Um, and we've got real partners in, in Congress. All of the work we do is actually under the direction and requirements of the law that Congress will enact to let us do it. So our standards for drug approval are actually set forth by Congress. And we've got a terrific, um, you know, resource in that. And, and over the long history, whoever's in, you know, whoever's in quote unquote power, who, whatever political winds may be blowing, um, the dedication of, of the sort of our partners on the Hill to looking at our issues and making sure we have the authority to do the very best we can from a scientific perspective is something that I think makes the, your, the American system successful. And I would say, you know, in the 20 plus years that I've been, you know, deeply involved on the women's cancer research side, obviously yeah. one tiny nugget of that, you know, of the scientific community that I have found, and I, this could be very naive, but I have found that scientific advancements and medical advancements that have required, you know, hand on hand were hand in hand work with the FDA and approvals of medicines and new kinds of therapies and drugs has never wavered or changed based on political parties. It's always been very consistent and that the FDA has been able, has worked with whoever's been in power, that, that, that it has been, it's, it's an a, it's very apolitical and maybe that's yeah. really naive, but I have found that that is extraordinary. And I don't know if most people really know that or are able to see that. And certainly in today's climate, you know, everything seems so politicized. Um, but I would say that the FDA is, is really outside that bubble in the best way possible. Um, I don't know if you're able to comment on that, but that's, that's really my feeling. Well, my experience, I can, and, and obviously the, our whole discussion today is sort of my view and not the view of the FDA. Um, of course, but I of will, course, I, yeah, I, I would say that that has been my experience as well. Obviously, each administration, no matter, you know, where, where, what hat you wear, will have priorities. Right. We want to put our energies into this element of public health, FDA, et cetera. But, but the good news is, is that we are a highly scientific organization. And in my experience, almost every part of it have been, has been sort of apolitical when it comes to the science. Like you can't, you know, the science is the science and you, you sort of can't, um, 
say don't you know approve a drug if the science isn't there or don't approve a drug if the you know if the science isn't you know is there um my personal experience has been that it's been um really up to the science and i think that that's yeah and you, know, you never yeah. want to put the american people at risk and that would never do well for that would blow back poorly on any administration so that yeah. you know that comes down to the science absolutely 100 percent. i mean i've seen it in you know i've seen some interesting you know things i've had I just had a call a couple of days ago by um, an overseas-based biotechnology company who's developing a chemotherapy, excuse me, a drug for women who have ovarian cancer who have responded negatively to platinum-based chemotherapies. So a lot of women who have ovarian cancer are given platinum-based chemotherapy because that's what most women respond to with ovarian uh-huh. cancer. It's uh-huh. sort of the go-to standard to fight ovarian cancer. But there are women who don't respond to that. For example, my mother did not. It, you know, five years of trying different platinum-based therapies, it didn't work. It, it can prolong a little bit, but it, it never helped her. So there's a company that approached me through, you know, a, a random connection. And they are in phase two trials, and they have a couple hundred women in their trial, but they need 300 more women U.S.-based. And so they contacted me because I'm a U.S.-based nonprofit, and Mm -hmm. uh, they think I have access, you know, to women that then they can get their drug in front of via the hospitals that I work with. And, you know, my initial answer was, that's not my role, <laughs> and um, <laughs> you, you know, and yeah. I can I can absolutely put you in touch with the researchers and yeah. the administrators that I work with, but I don't know where you are in your approval levels, you know, and like this is that you we don't you know I could never first of all I don't work directly with patients, but you know, and I don't think there was anything fishy going on. But I do believe that it is partly because if anyone can get a trial approved in the U.S. and then, you know, be able to get then FDA approved a drug, it's like you said, that's the gold standard. And then, you know, from a business perspective, obviously, then they have a new drug approved and FDA approval in the United States. That's a big, huge deal for a company. And then also for you know, the patients that it would then serve is also a big deal um, on so many different levels. But it was interesting. And I was actually in 20 years, the first time I've ever gotten a call like that, Um, which I thought was fascinating. It is very surprising. It was really surprising. And it was surprising it happened two days before I was getting on the phone with you (laughs) to talk about it. Um, And it was even more surprising that during this time, of COVID because I've had two calls in the last month um, that I would have normally just because of, you know, work in the foundation, but I've interviewed for this podcast, my directors of my clinics in New York um, at NYU and at USC in LA and talking about women coming in for treatment during COVID. And that in itself has been really interesting and the fear factor of coming into the hospital. And then also a lot of women, who are going through treatments for cancer actually do immunotherapy, which is essentially boosting your immune system to its max, which is 
kind of what COVID does. And so there was a lot of fear that by doing that artificially would put them at greater risk uh-huh. um, if they could track the virus. So there's, you know, all this, talk, we sort of discussed that and they found that, no, it's not worth stopping that because, you know, it's sort of six, six one way, half dozen the other, et cetera. And doing it in a very controlled setting and, you know, really knowing how to keep them isolated, et cetera. Um, but then to get that call, and knowing that it, how difficult it is to get women in general, but then to sign up for a clinical trial that's, yeah. you know, and it's up, it was really interesting um, on so many different levels. But I also thought about it in terms of, you know, this, this really intense desire to get FDA approved. <laughs> um, yeah. Because they don't have to bring it to the U.S. They could have gone for clinical trials other places in the world. Um, including their own home country that their company is based in um, and gone about it that way. But they absolutely wanted to find a U.S.-based nonprofit with a foothold in two yeah. very prominent institutions on yeah. either side of the country, even more so, um, which I do have, um, just because that's where I'm based. It was, it, was, it was pretty fascinating, especially leading up to talking to you. Um, so I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Has there been anything that you, you know, you've had such an interesting, you've had such an interesting, you know, career, if we can say that your career started in co- in college, um, you know, with English literature leading into law and then taking you to the FDA. And I know I'm skipping over other things, <laughs> but, you know, you're from Michigan and then you're in New York and D.C. And what has been... What has been your, I know there's, so I'm sure there've been more than one and, you know, just professionally, what has been, what have, have been some of your biggest professional challenges um, that you can think of, you know, in the last, I, I don't know, it's been, you know, in the last 10 years, 15 years yeah. that have really then propelled you forward um, that I guess you know, I never think of a challenge as a negative, you know, it's all learning experiences, but what have been some that have really been ones that you could share that other women can learn from? I, th- I think two just popped into mind. So I'll start with those and we can, we can, we can go from there. Um, I think one was, and this is a little bit, uh, a little bit longer than 10 years. And that was to move from sort of what I went to law school and wanted to do in my brain um, to a different part of the law. And that is, is I went to law school because I wanted to be a prosecutor um, and not just because I watched a lot of law and order, but I really thought that that was the greatest way to have an impact and would would meet my sort of intellectual and, and personal desires for a profession. I thought that being in a courtroom would be amazing. And so after I went to law school, I went to a big New York law firm, moved town to D.C., thank goodness, because I got to spend more time with you, um, and mm-hmm. clerked, for, clerked for a federal judge and saw people in court every day and thought that was going to be awesome. And then I went and worked for a firm in D.C. And I found myself um, faced with two challenges. And it was a fabulous firm um, and really supportive of me and the trajectory that I had articulated to them, which I just articulated to you and had lots of great opportunities. But two things sort of came to mind. One was I actually experienced a fair amount of sexism in that area, not from my own firm, but just 
you know, a young woman as a white collar criminal defense lawyer, I was really startled by people asking me to make copies and go by their, you know, cell phone chargers when I had prepared the meeting and was ready to present. And it was sort of flabbergasting and, for and me. Had, so, and I had graduated magna cum laude from NYU Law School. Right. Well, I wouldn't say Magna, but but I did I did okay. graduate so with some, some. I have some cred. I have some cred, and I were you know yeah. I had learned a lot, and so that was so surprising to me. Although I you know you as a woman, most of us, if not all of us, unfortunately, you know hit that hit some of that, and and I remember the my you know colleagues and and partners in my firm were you know flabbergasted and and but but that's sort of the way that it was. And so realizing that as a professional woman who, you know, for better, for worse, looks younger than, you know, older, um, and certainly did back then, it was, it was that real life hit that we all get when you're not, you're not letting me, um, you're not listening to me for what I can contribute to your well-being, client, partner, opposing counsel. You see me in a very limited role and you can't see past it. And so that was um, a really uh, eye-opening challenge. And, and you just learn not only to sort of deal with it, but identify it, name it, you know, try to address it and make it transparent, even if you can't, you know, change it um, and just figure out how you're going to try to rise above it and what resources and other folks you can tap to help you with that. Um, so that was actually sort of a, although it shouldn't have been unexpected, it it was real. Um, the other challenge was it was actually a, a much, it was sort of a, even from beginning, and I learned a ton. So I totally agree with you that any challenge is a an opportunity for personal growth and, you know, if it's in your job, professional growth. I think with respect to the other idea that popped in my head was I made the decision about five years ago to leave the chief counsel's office, which is basically like a law firm for the FDA. There's a, a chief, an office of chief counsel, sort of like a general counsel, and they're the they're the traditional lawyers of the agency. Like if somebody sues the agency because they don't want a generic drug approved, or you know they think we've done something wrong, um, or we go after somebody in an enforcement action, they're the lawyers. And I had the opportunity to go be part of what turned out to be a total overhaul of the generic drug program to come over and help set up this office that I now have the good fortune to be the director of. And so for the very first time, um, I was a manager. I got to ma I got to hire people and manage them and design their workload and design what our relationship as an office would be with other parts. And it was this sort of mind blowing and stretching experience where I, it wasn't like my legal acumen was about 15% of my job for a long time. And the rest was, how do we build, you know, a functioning office and community? And how do I manage people in a way that supports them, rewards them, supports and rewards me and gets this enormous job done? And it was a crazy opportunity, and I had a lot of false starts and made a lot of mistakes. But the benefit is, is that I now have an experience that I didn't really think I would have being a lawyer, and that is sort of building and help and and directing, you know, an office now of fifty-five people, 
um, who are doing this great work. And, and it's, it's hard, you know, supervising people is hard. You want to, it's not only hard it's the hardest. because it's, it's the hardest because hardest. sometimes you have, sometimes you have employees that are, you know, challenging either because they've got mm-hmm. stuff going on in their personal life or they're just, you know, lousy at their job. That's challenging. What's also challenging is making sure you're fostering, you know, folks who are new and, you know, people who you want to foster everybody and you want to make sure that their work experience is as good as it can be. And that's also a lot of work and is really, really rewarding when it, when you see people, especially when you see people growing or stepping up to new challenges themselves. So that has been um, a challenge, but a, I think maybe the most rewarding of my professional career is is playing that role. Wow, I think it's amazing. I think I do think managing people, and I only manage a few, is really challenging. And I would say during this time, these last few months, oh, even geez. more so because it's just crazy and and also not seeing people all the time yes you know trying to make sure they're okay and then yes you know also working and i mean and go the list goes on and on it's 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 incredible and it takes so much patience and you've become like their manager and psychologist and mm-hmm. mother and sister and everything at the same time while also taking on this new role of you know, being home and yeah. there's this, you know, bizarre thing. And, and I know you and you've always worked, you've always worked out of the home and have this incredible ability to balance, you know, being a, a mom, but also leaving the house. And so I don't <laughs> yes. even know yeah, how that's yeah. going. And, you know, it, that is beyond. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I just, it's so out of whack it's just crazy so um the last question I do want to ask you is you know all these years and you could say your kids and your relationship but what do you and and obviously you just touched on a huge one but what do you think has you know what would you say has been your greatest achievement thus far and I think of us as and you're younger than I am as you know only just beginning and finding our stride and that's how I feel about our 40s but um, you know, what do you, what do you see as your greatest achievement thus far? Oh my gosh, that is a big question. Um, I, I would say what I hope, what I hope is my achievement, what I hope my achievement to be is, and this sounds totally corny, but it is true that I have made it's not just made made a positive impact on people is is part of it, but I would say made people who have been in relationship with me personally and professionally like have has enriched their lives. And to the extent that I've been a successful in that, I told you it sounded totally corny. And I am from the Midwest, so I can be corny. Um, I it's, <laughs> you know, I know, I know, but it really, it really is like when I see my kid or my husband or a neighbor or somebody I work with or get a letter from a patient, um, that said, you know, your contribution, like made my life better. It's, it just, there's nothing better. There's nothing better than that. Like I ha- I worked on this generic drug approval and, and I do think that my, you know, obviously my family and my, my personal relationships are just such a D 
deep part of me, but just to, to have a professional, you know, I worked night and no kidding, like night and day for, you know, almost a year on to help get a generic drug approved. And it was one of the more, more difficult approvals that, that we've ever faced. And it was for a, a, a product that is used to treat infections in the hospital. And, you know, working at the FDA, you can't talk about what you're working on. So everyone knew I had a big project, but no one knew what it was. And my mom, who's a psychologist, um, a week after this big approval came out, called me and said, you're not going to believe this. I have a patient who's a nun who is in Detroit and was talking to her doctor and her doctor said, you had this infection and we had the generic. And honestly, if we didn't have the generic drug, I don't know what we would have given you. And it was the generic drug that I had helped got approved, you know, and it was like, oh my God, like literally, I mean, I shouldn't say like, oh my God, that's, but, but it was, that's the type of, right, exactly, exactly. Like the thumbs up. Um, you know, that's the type, if I can make that type of impact, like, I can't ask for anything more. It's cheesy, but it's like, you know. No, it's amazing. And I still love eating it's nachos, amazing. you know, but I, you know, I like everyday, st- I get, I get joy out of everyday stuff too, but that's the kind of impact I want to make. So if I'm ever successful in doing that, I think that's the claim to fame. I think that's amazing because it's not just the people specifically telling you that it's all the people that you'll never hear from directly. And that's incredible. And, and truly there, there are people who can say that, but not enough. And you are one of those people that are affecting millions and we are all grateful for the work that you do and not just the work you do, Meryl, but the passion that you bring to your job is that you bring to your career is, is, tremendous. And um, I'm so happy that I got to ask you these questions. Um, It's one of those things that when you know someone for so long that I never get to sit down and literally just hammer these away at you. And I'm so grateful that I got this time. Oh, me too. um, Oh, I'm so grateful that I got to ask you these questions. You are, you truly are uh, just a one of a kind human. And there are so many women who are hopefully listening to this and can follow in your footsteps and look up to you, um, including your daughter. Um, she's so lucky to have you as a role model. Oh, you are one yeah. of a kind and just lovely. And you are so smart. You're just, <laughs> and I, I just was listening to someone say that, you know, there are different kinds of smart people, um, people who are not book smart, but creatively smart or, you know, not they, you know, whose brain work, whose brain works in different ways. And I think you like check all the boxes. It's oh, geez. You do. So I'll stop embarrassing you, but thank, thank you for the time. Thank uh, you. So have dinner with your family. Give them all I will. for me. And this um, has been such a pleasure. Soon.